0: Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape-recorded. My name is Paul Malary and this is X-Job Downloaded. Today it's my intention to interview Richie Lagu. Correct pronunciation? That is, yeah. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. I-, I would imagine that's French. Do you know the origins of the name?
1: Yeah, it uh, dates back to the uh, something to do with the Huguenots. Huguenots. Yeah. Now
0: that's a subject I have absolutely no idea. Other than the fact that they moved into the East End of London and they were residents of Whitechapel and the Brick Lane area. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. There you go. Yeah. So That's yeah, uh, a new for me, well. isn't I like my, my East London history, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a fact. They've they actually resided in that area. Completely different world now. Um, welcome, Richie, to X-Job Downloaded today. Now... You've had an interesting life, you've, you've, you've done, I, I really should title this the, the Reluctant Police Officer, because um, you were <laughs> in the police, um, but you weren't in there for very long, it's fair to
1: say. Mm-hmm. But before we
0: get into that, let's start from the beginning, what, where are you from originally?
1: So from a small town in northeast Essex called Sea. Um,
0: Brightling Sea.
1: Oh, I know oh, Brighton oh, Sea. Oh, yes. Yes, and it um, was certainly put on the map with the uh, live animal exports back in uh, 19... 1994. Four. Yeah, it was 1994.
0: Really yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great place. In fact, I, I used to live just up the road from Brighton Sea. My parents, when they first got married... They lived in a accommodation there. My dad was in the army in, in Colchester and he couldn't they couldn't get a army property there, so they rented in City, So ah, I, I know it well. Yeah. Um what year were you born?
1: Seventy five.
0: Seventy five, the year West Ham won the FA Cup. <laughs> so it's that's a big year for me. 19, May nineteen seventy five we won the FA Cup. Um and your, your nor, normal childhood in, in Brighton Sea, I suppose.
1: Yeah, indeed. Well, as, as normal as it gets in Brighton Sea. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, there are worse places in the world.
0: I love it down there. Um, so you go through your normal school in secondary school. Did you, did you go to grammar or you... Uh...
1: No. So I, I completed my school in uh, uh, the Cone High School in Brighton Sea and I did a year of sixth form. So I did a year of A levels, but um, decided it, it wasn't for me, and wanted to go out and uh, earn a crust and get a get a motorbike and a drum kit and so on. So uh, how did you get a drum kit on your motorbike? <laughs> <laughs> with, with difficulty. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, so I left um, sixth form after a year and went and did a four year engineering apprenticeship at uh, a place called Woods of Colchester, yep. an old uh, GEC company. So, uh, yeah, I trained tried to become a mechanical and production engineer. And they had the best social club in Colchester. They did indeed, yeah, Woodwood Wood Social Club. Um, I the, saw some great bands there. Well, the likes of Queen played there yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: they did, yeah, absolutely, and that's all houses now.
1: Yeah, that's right. But yeah. I, saw,
0: I saw some absolutely fantastic bands there. Um, yeah, it was, it was a brilliant, brilliant night out, but sadly it's all gone. Mm. So you
1: did your apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, did, did did my apprenticeship so four years, and that was um, day release to uh, Colchester Institute, so day release and night school as well. Um, got my papers, so got got my ONC HNC in Mech and Prod Engineering, and um, yeah, then I went on to get into sales engineering. So um, yeah, went out um, on the road repping a while so uh, yeah yeah and i I was um did did that for several years selling uh bearings and power transmission of all things Wow, yawn (laughs) but but
0: there's a market for everything in this world and um i mean woods were a huge producer of 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 that type of thing and they were a big employer in culture in fact there were a number of engineering companies back in the day um which of course everything's gone overseas now but that's another story Mm -hmm. um So was it whilst you were repping and sales that you thought, do you know what, I might go and do something completely different?
1: Yeah, so how the story goes is I got to around 25, I think it was, so 2000, and um, I actually thought I, I wanted to join the RAF. So I applied for a commission. And um I went through all the process which was about a year from start to finish from walking into the Careers Office in South End to going to the Officer and Air Crew Selection Centre at RAF Cranwell in Lincolnshire, um and undergoing all the aptitude tests and so on. Um to to then be told that um I, I hadn't been successful. Um which, which was okay uh, hind, and hindsight's a great thing I think it was pro- probably a good thing <laughs> um, and actually well, well it did make me laugh one of the bits of feedback was uh, fr- from the uh, interview panel was oh la- lacks a bit of polish apparently so right? uh, yeah yeah. Apparently. Well, I can't deny that there's, there's you know a mm-hmm. bit, bit of the older uh, Essex geezer comes in now and then yeah, so uh, <laughs> so um, yeah so I applied for that and uh, also another piece of feedback was that um, I didn't have much in the way of uh, uniformed experience or team experience. So what happened was I uh, I took that on the chin and I thought, right, okay, what, what have I got to do to improve my chances of obtaining that commission? So I joined the Auxiliary Air Force. I joined uh, okay. 2623 Squadron at uh, RAF Honington, which is a uh, regiment. So, um, yeah, my my title was Gunner there, albeit I I only did that for around a year because what I realised during that time was that um, that wasn't quite what I was looking for, fortunately. Um, uh, But during that time, um, I got friends with uh, an officer who was in Special Branch and he sort of suggested to me, oh, you you know, if you're not going for the for the RAF. Special what? branch in Essex? Yeah. Who was that? Yeah, yeah, Lee Newton. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. got the MBE, didn't he, or something similar to oh, that? I don't know, yeah, didn't I think, he yeah, I'm pretty he sure is. he did, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so um, he suggested, he said, well, you know, why not think about the job? Because he said, yeah, it's best of both worlds. You get the uniform service, you get the institution, and da-da-da, sat the other, but, but also you're on Civvy Street's deal. So he then put me in touch with um, Ian Logan at yeah. uh, Colchester, yeah. and I did some work shadowing, so I went out on a couple of shifts. Nice man, yeah, yeah, good guy. Um, and he also introduced me to Steve Hutley as well on the dog ah, section. Well, we've
0: done a podcast with Steve, and if you listen to the very first podcast that we did, it features Steve and his exploits in the Falkland Islands.
1: Ah, oh yes, that's yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, so I actually went out on a couple of shifts with Steve as well, and um, formed a friendship with him. He, and um, a good guy? yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, salt, salt of the earth. And um, yeah, off the back of that, I applied to to Essex and uh, ended up joining in um, May two thousand and two. Oh, okay.
0: And where did you you? I suppose you went to Ashford to start off with.
1: I did. Yeah. Um. One of the. I think one of the last lot to go to Ashford, actually, before it all became centralised, yeah. And actually, um, I was in the last lot of probationers to go down there um, to be wearing the blue shirts as as PC. Oh, really? And actually, we we had to change over to the white shirts while we were down there. there. Yeah, yeah.
0: I miss the old blue shirts, you know. And, And the reason I miss them is because you could spot a governor a mile away. Exactly. If all the PCs are wearing, and sergeants are wearing blue, when a governor came walking through in a white shirt, you knew exactly that was going to be a, a, an inspector or above. Yep, yep, definitely. But yeah. they, they then give us those white shirts and then they give us black shirts and I, just, <laughs> I was absolutely against that, but that's another story. <laughs> so you're at Ashford. How was your experience there? What
1: was that like? Oh, <clears throat> I absolutely loved it. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Really thrived on it. Well, I, n- I never went to university, so it, it, for me, it, it felt almost like being at being at uni, albeit for you know a, a much shorter time. But um, we had uh, quite a different experience in in my class compared to others because the because there were so many officers on the intake, there wasn't enough accommodation on site. So a number of us were staying at um, Y College just down the road, which I think was an agricultural college. Um, And because it was, by the time we got there, it was sort of July time, I think. All the students who would normally be there were off on their summer holidays. So we got the benefit of being able to get off of site and almost like go home for the night each night. Um, and then you know, come back each day for, oh, for, for the day stuff. So, and I think that did make a difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's more of a grown-up sort of uh, experience. Oh, I loved Ashford. I was 21 years old when I went there. We got snowed in. It was absolutely superb. It was, it, you know, the food was dire, but the actual experience itself, I, I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. But mm, I think that's where your characters are built. And unfortunately, it's all done in-house at the headquarters now. And yeah. You know, they, don't have, they can't have those laughs that we had. And I suppose some of them were inappropriate, but do you know what? It was a bloody laugh. Mm, yeah. um, so you pass out at Ashford.
1: hmm
0: Where do you go to as your first posting?
1: Uh, so I got posted to Colchester Division.
0: And you're a Brighton City resident, so that makes it quite, not awkward, but you would know people in the town and working in woods. You will know the area well.
1: Yeah, 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 but that was also a benefit because, you know, also having been um, a a rep in the area, uh, my geographical knowledge was pretty good as well, so that certainly helped. Um, Yeah. And you went on shift there? Yeah, I was on um, C-shift response for the first two years and then uh, at the end of my probation, I transferred to the North Community Police Team Okay. And um, I inherited uh, St Anne's Ward, um, so, yes. which is uh, also known as White City in, in oh, Okay, so yeah, the salt of, uh,
0: salt of the Earth area. I mean, yeah. it's, um, for those listening, uh, White City is a uh, former, uh, count, they're all council homes. They were built as council homes. And I had a lot of experiences there when I was a major crime. Interesting enough, we had a fatal fire up there. Um, there was a, a number of things that took place up there, which were, were pretty sad. Um, I don't think we ever found the person responsible for that. But yeah, it's, it's got it's got its um, its downside, but there's a lot of positives there as well. There's a lot of really good people that live in this enclave. Um, but yeah, so you were up there,
1: yeah. And I mean, at the time, it was in the top 13 most deprived wards in the country. Yeah. And um, a lot of people thought that um, uh, Greenstead uh, w- was was worse than St Anne's or White City, but actually it wasn't because it had uh, it had more of an infrastructure. It had community. It had yeah. community centres. It had shops and all sorts. Whereas St Anne's had nothing.
0: And and, and I, I vividly remember you'd go into a house and there'd be no wooden doors because the doors would have been chopped up and put on the fire. Mm. Yeah. Everything was, you know, you had metal doors, you had metal railings outside the houses because the fences went the same way because people couldn't afford to buy their fuel. Yeah. Yeah. It is very very socially deprived and um but as I say there's some great people that lived up there, real characters.
1: Yeah, and uh I mean, I mean the, the the biggest thing at the hub of it was the primary school right in the, in the in the center um which at the time had gone into special measures, but that was we were able to use that to our advantage because the new head that came in asked us if there was anything she could do to, to help with um, uh, police in the area. And uh, we'd identified that um, quite often um, if there was crime committed, the offenders would run through properties out of the back gardens across the school field and then they could appear anywhere else oh, okay. in, in any of the other properties as yeah. well. <clears throat> so, my tongue in cheek said to her, "How about a seven-foot-tall security fence around your around your around school, school playing field?" And you know what? She got it. She? she got it put in. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which which really helped. But yeah, you know, we did other things as well um, to to try and sort of familiarise um, and and, and desensitise the the younger population, the up and coming generation, really at primary school age. We that that. The police were okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got involved with going to open days there and so they could crawl all over the car and, you know, hopefully not strip it of the wheels. And <laughs> and I used to frustrate
0: the life, life out of me. As a, as a uniform officer, I'd walk around and, and people say, oh, there he is, there he is, he'll take you away. If you know. And you don't want kids to be in fear of the old bill. At the end of the day... You want them to have a warm feeling if they if they are in problems if they've got any issues at all that they can walk up to police officers and say I've got a problem. But when the parents mm. do that, it really used to work me. But anyway, that's 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 how it is. Uh, hopefully, well, hopefully there's people out there walking and they have the same interactions. But who knows? Yeah.
1: What were the highlights of working in Colchester? Um. Well, one of, the high, one of the highlights for me in particular was that transition from response across to community policing because it felt more like a proactive move. You didn't, mm. didn't feel like you were sort of firefighting all the time and just chasing your tail. So you could get down there at um, grassroots level and actually see what was going on and, and do some preemptive stuff. And that, for me, felt a lot more positive. Yeah. And, you know, getting in with like the residents' associations and stuff and doing some relationship building. Um, so around that time, that was, that was 2004, ASBOs were were hot topics. Yeah. And you'd have uh, had a lot up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, and social behaviour orders. That's right, yeah. And I, I was instrumental in um, yeah applying for some of those. And um, I was also the first officer on division to secure a dispersal order for the division. Oh, okay. And that was on um, St Anne's. Um, so that enabled us to... Uh, dispersed groups of two or more people, where yeah, uh, stop them congregating, and yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: I, I think that particular area, and there's a number of them in the UK, where the kids are, um, how should we say, it? they're dismissed before they've even started. They don't get a chance, mm-hmm. and it's they they get um, told well, not. I don't even think they get told. I think it's almost um, the the discrimination against them is subtle. The, the the schools try and help them, but society at large, if an, an employer, if a kid walks in and gives a particular address, mm. the kid's are already dismissed from that, that process because of where they come from. I think, anyway, I think that that's... Yeah. Um, and it's pretty unfair. Mm, quite
1: possibly. Yeah. So how
0: how long were you the um, community officer for St. Anne's?
1: Um, probably around... Ooh, about 18 months, I think it was, or so. And then my sort of final posting if you like was over towards um copford with um sergeant matty garrett sergeant Matty. <laughs>
0: the um i mean copford so when i was a kid when i was a yeah. kid the um police where the police station is you've got the police houses on the left hand side as you face the 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 station yeah we lived in those police houses. Oh, when they yeah. came out of the army, that his first posting was Colchester and we lived in the police houses. And next door to us was a lovely man called Eric Cayley who was a former paratrooper. And and years afterwards, we discovered that his wife was from Pakistan, which is, you know, Dolly, she was absolutely lovely. Um, but yeah, so I know, I know that area. And here's another one for you. The A12 came past the front door because the A12 wow. wasn't built then.
1: Oh wow, blimey. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, oh,
0: yeah, bi- the bypass. Yeah, so I, I know that well. So you're at Copford. I mean, you've got you've gone into a completely different stream of policing now.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um yeah, and uh, that fe- that was a, a bit more well, it felt a lot more sleepy, to to be honest, compared to YCT. Yeah, yeah so that was more like your, your theft of hanging baskets sort of thing. But, uh... Yeah,
0: different different clientele, and but still demanding for what they want. They still want their police service. I mean, Colchester's yes. always, you think about it, it's, it's a Roman, it's a city now, which I still can't get my head around. It's, it used to be the oldest recorded town, and now it's the oldest recorded city, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a mixture of, Military students and the general populace, and but they've still got you know great values, and there's still you know there's still a great rapport with the police, and long way it continue. Yeah. So, what was the highlight of working in the rurals, apart from working with Matt Garrett, of course? Um,
1: I, well, I, I think if anything, it was, it was well, it's probably a double-edged sword. Really, it was, um, it, it was quiet, which. Um, in some ways wasn't so great because, um, you know, you need something to keep you ticking over. But that was also one of the bonuses as well, that it it wasn't... Well, you weren't flat out all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was... uh, Was it
0: there that you decided that you were going to make the transition out of the police
1: service? Yes, it was, yeah,
0: yeah. Do you you think if you'd have gone to a a different location, a different police station, you'd have stayed in there or had you just had enough?
1: No, I I think um, I'd just got to the point where I'd I'd had enough. I think um, subconsciously I think I'd always wanted to to try and prove to myself and everyone else that I could uh, be this upstanding pillar of society (laughs) (laughs) and hold down a responsible job Um, because I'd always been a bit um, footloose and fancy-free and a bit wayward. And um, I think part of me felt that... I I'd, I'd achieve that and um the the other thing that that came out was that um as, as part of the, the the nature of the work I I discovered that I had some um, mental illness which hadn't been um you know looked into or, or discovered before oh, I had. okay so I, I had some issues with um anxiety and depression and um you know what what really Helped was the fact that um, I was able to access some counselling for the first time in my life and within uh, the police service, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, well, not it, w- it was organized within the, organised police, by but, the police, but, but, but independent.
0: What, what was the uh, if you don't want to answer this, I, I won't be offended, but what was the trigger that made you realize that you know your mental health wasn't as, as good as it probably could have been? Um,
1: hmm. Good question, well presented. I think uh, I just—I mean, I, I noticed in myself that my mood was wasn't where it used to be, and that I, there was a big change in in my personality within myself. I think maybe an element of uh, vicarious trauma as well. Um, I was very much um, like I say, I used to be very sort of footloose and fancy free, and what I what I noticed and what my friends noticed who weren't in the job. Um, that they all they all sort of saw that I'd become incredibly serious and untrusting, and um, had lost a, a bit of that sort of spark and zest yeah. for life, really. Um, so yeah, and um, were there were there experiences in
0: the police service that that you and I don't want to drag this up, but but that you experienced that may have triggered some of that? You, you know, you say vicarious trauma, but. We we as a collective deal with fatal road collisions, uh, sudden infant death, things like that, and they mm. do sit in your subconscious. Whatever you think about that, they sit with you. We've all got our different ways of dealing with those those images in our photographic memories. Mm. But was there anything like that that you can sort of put your finger on and say actually that's what made the difference, or that was, or was it just a collective of issues?
1: I, th- I think there was. Um yeah there was it was a collective of issues but there there was one particular incident which um really sort of stuck in my mind and and I was, wasn't really happy about how it had been dealt with by the organisation right and um and I just thought what, what am I doing and what, what is this all about? And it really made me sort of step back. Can you, can you tell back. us
0: what that is or you'd rather not say?
1: Yeah, happy to. Yeah, I mean, I was um, first on the scene to uh, uh, what had been called in as a hit and run. And um, got to the scene, I was tasked with doing some house to house, which was in town centre in Colchester. So I went into a pub to see if they had any CCTV um, by which point the uh, the victim had been conveyed off up to hospital. Um, so it's all, all being treated as hit and run at that yeah. time. Um, struck,
0: by, struck by a car and the car's left the scene.
1: Yeah, indeed. Um, until I'm then sat with the manager of this pub uh, looking at the CCTV and we see that this guy's frog-marched up this road um, where he's then um, hit over the back of the head with a uh, champagne bottle and and uh, numerous guys then go up and took running kicks at his head, oh. and um, so yeah, then became a very different story. Yeah, to then get the call come through from ambulance that the victim had then passed away. So that's it, a game changer, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So from being um, on a on a half night, um, just. Uh, to, to be on patrol around the town and being on a rest break to be called out to, to uh, first on the scene to a hit and run to suddenly it changing into that was a massive game changer. Yeah, yeah
0: I can understand
1: that. And, um, and I, I felt like I was the, the catalyst throughout that whole event um, because I was then having to go down to the uh, public CCTV place at the time and review that and there were officers saying, oh, I know who that is. That's that so and so um, It was that so-and-so who did it. He was in town earlier. And I was saying, no, it's not him. I can assure you it wasn't him because I saw him earlier and he couldn't even stand. Yeah. And he was being, like, led away. he he'd made public <laughs> enemy number one. <laughs> yeah. And he was nicked. Oh really? Yeah, and I, and I really disagreed with that, and I thought, you know, you're not you're not listening to what I'm saying here. <laughs> this guy had had his arms around two guys and his feet dragging behind him. He wasn't capable of standing up, let, let alone going to do that. Um, and that undermines your
0: value, as you feel that, you know, when people don't listen to you, and I'm I'm cutting in, so I'm not. I am listening to you, but you feel that your position's been under undermined, don't you? When yes, when people go against you,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So what what was the outcome did they actually find the person
1: responsible? They yeah, they they found the people but um I, I don't know what the outcome was in the end. No. Um I well as a result of that particular incident um within a few days I ended up um going off sick. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Um I mean it ended up being like a 16 hour shift or something for me and um yeah, it was uh bit too much for me to deal with and there, there was no critical instant debrief or anything no. for me and I was just kind of left holding the baby so to speak. Yeah.
0: And it is hard I mean I, I I witnessed somebody in fact I was at Ashford and I'd come home for New it was New Year's Eve at the Tartan House which was up at, at Freighting. Freighting, yeah. And as I walked out a member of the public walked into the path of a car mm-hmm. and was killed on the spot and I saw it all happen in front of me. Yeah and that was thirty Well I joined December eight I joined December eighty six, so that's you know, it's thirty seven years. No, not that, is it? 36, 37 thirty six thirty seven years ago, yeah, nearly thirty seven years ago. But I still remember it. Yeah. You know, and and that that does, you know, all these all these different things, they do build up in your in your pot of rubbish, if you like, and then and it and then it all amalgamates and then it causes you issues. So you've gone off sick. Is that what when you got posted to Cotford after you when you came back from your sickness? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you just you're disaffected, effect, effectively disaffected by the the police, mm-hmm. and you think, well, do you know what? I'm going to go and do something completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, do you know what? That's a really brave move. And if there's anyone listening to this, hopefully they'll take heart in the fact that you can do it. Yeah. Because I think we become, I became institutionalised. I love the police. I'm you know I'm really really proud and passionate about it. But it is a institution, mm-hmm. and. It, it, you know as i say it affects people in different ways but you know i think you're very brave to have made the step out so you stepped outside what was that like handing your warrant card back and how did you feel
1: firstly thank thank you for praising me for but oh, yeah yeah that's kind of you to say i appreciate that um because it it was a big step it was yeah. it was a, it was a massive um decision to make and um i felt like it was the, the only decision i could make um yeah it was it was uh I had, I had a bit you know quite a bit of ambivalence about it really you know a part of me was um worried and frightened about what the future held uh the other part of me was massively relieved that all that responsibility had then suddenly gone mm. um but uh you know there was a there was a sense of loss of um you know the losing that comradeship yeah um but it was the the right decision for me, and um, I think also having spent some time at the um, police rehabilitation place goring in goring uh, Flint House as it's known yeah um, that opened my eyes up to a number of other stories that uh, other officers had told me about their experiences in the police their their experiences with mental illness and also maybe how they, they'd been dealt with by their particular organisations. And there were certain particular stories that really stuck in my mind. And I thought, yeah, actually, the police is always going to be here, whereas I'm not. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so it was um, it was scary walking away. However, I mean, I, I wasn't, I didn't join till I was 27. So I'd already had a bit of life experience under my belt. And I already knew that, um, I could um, turn my hand to most things and that there was life beyond the job and I'd, and I'd not paid so much into the pension to then feel like I, I was stuck in it Yeah, and um, you know and, and there were people saying to me oh you know Rich if, if I didn't have 10 years pay, paid into the pension I'd be out by yeah. now da, da, da. and I thought you know what I've just got to do it and um, you yeah, know it used to be that the job was for life um, and I thought, no, there, there is only one me, and I, I need to do what, what's right for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, don't regret the service that I did. I don't regret anything that happened w- within the job. Um, if anything, uh, I'm grateful for it because it, um, you know, opened up this Pandora's box of uh, looking into my own mental illness and, mm. and insight and so on. Um, I'm very much, um, I very much consider that that all things happen for a reason in life, and um, a lot of the jobs that I did beforehand all kind of complemented the, the way and, and helped yeah. me get into the police. For example, like my my um, sorry, I'm going off the no track no 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 here. no. Listen, this is fascinating. So please carry on. So, for example, um, you probably won't find many Commonwealth Garden PCs saying they enjoy interviewing. <laughs> Most of them enjoyed being. Out and about on Chasing the on the street, yeah. yeah you know um thief taking, whereas um having been tra- trained in sales and spent a number of years out on the road yeah. meeting people i have never met before and interviewing them, um, asking various open and closed questions, and I will say it's manipulative because it is yeah, of course it is it's because you' you're there to try and sell, you're there to yeah. try and persuade them around to your ideas. Um, but that helped in particular with my interviewing technique and, the, the, you know, the peace training model and so on. So um, I, I particularly loved doing interviewing because yeah. it, was, it was a good way to actually not just look at the crime itself but actually, right, okay, what's actually gone on here? What's going on for the person in their mind? Why have they done it? You know, all the, all the men's rear and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That That fascinated me. And also, there is that there is that game playing with the solicitors and that as well. Um, and and I, yeah, you know, I actually absolutely loved no comment interviews as well. A lot of people hated them, but I I loved them because I could I, I knew the ins and outs of pace and um, yeah, firing the special warnings and so on and um yeah, just.
0: but it is it is. I mean, I obviously doing this, I like interview, but people like people, and I've interviewed a number of murderers and whilst I don't like what they did I found them fascinating individuals mm. and as you say even if they make no comment that's not a personal thing that's the advice that they're given the law, law of the land allows it but they're interesting people and if you can just delve into that it, it really is fascinating people are fascinating and that's why we do X Job Downloaded mm. when you uh, you've walked away you've handed over your warrant card and you just go back to Flint House. I have mm-hmm. to say, Flint House do a fantastic job with police officers, and yep. they help you identify your inner self. Yeah. Sometimes police forces don't want that to happen because actually the, the, there's an attrition of, of staff that leave. And but I also need to make it clear that it's something that's paid for by the police. It's not. It's not publicly funded. It's it, we we all paid into Flint House and and subscribe right. to it. Yeah, valid.
1: Bene- benevolent fun was it. Well,
0: yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, benevolent fun, that's it. So you've you've now walked away from the police, your warrant card's gone back, that bit of plastic that used to get you on the tubes and <laughs> save your life. And it did, you know, genuinely, that little bit of plastic. That was the only thing if you produced that and somebody was kicking off, that that would either that would nine times out of ten that would pacify somebody. They'll think twice about striking. They did then. I don't know what it's like now. Mm. they think twice about striking a police officer. Yeah, the the, the one person that's going to do it, they're always going to do it. But you've handed that all back. Okay. Yep. What did Richie do next?
1: Well, I actually went and worked for a, a friend of mine. Um, so I went back into sales because it was – what I knew um albeit in a totally different industry so I went and worked for a friend of mine selling luxury log cabins and mobile homes but um yeah I mean that that wasn't really by choice that was more a case of needing to have something to go to when I left yeah. and and him kind of helping me out and me knew it knowing that I could do sales but um the The sort of game plan um, I, I had whilst I was in the police was that I'd realised that I preferred the the more em, empathic side of of helping people and listening to people and victim care and that sort of thing rather than the uh, the thief taking. So um, whilst I was in the police, it, it kind of made me think, well, actually, what about you know health and social care that sort of thing? Maybe I'd be more attuned to that. Um, because you know, d- during um, those four years, not once did I use my ASP. Not once did I use my gas. You know, I just, right. just 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 use my mouth. Yeah. Um, which to me was was the the best way. Yeah, in, in terms of conflict resolution. Um, and I thought, well, actually, perhaps my skills would be better suited to to somewhere else. And um, yeah, it, it wasn't until a few years later that um I managed to break into. That sort of sector oh really um, yeah so I left left the police in 2006 and it wasn't until 2010 that I managed to get into that sort of sector because it's it's not easy to get into
0: and what what side of that did you get into
1: um, so I became a independent mental health advocate in and I was living in Suffolk at the time so I used to go into acute psychiatric hospitals and um, which people will know as where people are sectioned. Yeah. So one, three, six, um, the Mental Health Act. The, yeah. yeah. That, there, that's it. Yeah. Uh, or two or three, two if or three, they're yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, and that that involved um, going into hospitals and where people have been sectioned because they were you know, deemed to be uh, at um, risk of significant harm to themselves or others. Yeah. Um, but due to their mental disorder. And I would go in and support them to get their voices heard. Um, And that could be I'd sit with them at a a ward round, um, which could be asking for basic things that they didn't feel able to voice themselves to staff. Um, At their CPA, which is a care program approach meetings, which is all about how they're. uh, Care packages coordinated, and what they do on a day to day basis, what their aftercare is going to look like, and so on. And also, I'd um, sit with them on um, mental health review tribunals as well to try and get their sections overturned. Oh, okay. But it was an it was an interesting role because it wasn't um, there. There was no advice given, so as an advocate, you're it's quite an unusual uh, role in that you're you're going in, you're identifying what the problem is. And then you're exploring options and then you're, empower- you're exploring those options with your client, i.e. the pros and cons, and then you're empowering them to make a decision. And whatever decision they make, you then support them with. And it could be that, that decision you think is totally wrong and you think is, is, is an unwise decision, but that's not what you're there for. Yeah, you know, you're there to su- support that person, right. so that so they feel yeah, um, in charge of their own. Okay, their own destiny. Destiny. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's interesting because I mean, bear in mind you, you you disclosed earlier on that you suffer with your own mental health. Mm. How was that going into a, a psychiatric unit that, that with people with acute issues? How was that for you? Um,
1: yeah, it was. It, it was um, interesting um how else could i put it, it in a in
0: did a, you see any correlation between you and them did was there mm. the, i mean the empathetic side is obviously there but did you see that there was a, you know a, a commonality between the between you and the people that you were visiting
1: yeah absolutely yeah yeah i, I could see that and i could and, and i was always thinking crikey, i could just be you know one one step away from been sectioned at any time yeah. myself. If 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 my mental illness took a, a turn for the worse at any time, yeah. And I, I actually thought, well, I'd, I'd been very fortunate up until that time to have not been sectioned myself, right? Okay. Um, because I saw the well, I saw both, the, both the, the good good points and the not so good points about what what comes with that, yeah. Um, and but in, in a kind of selfish way, it also made me incredibly grateful that. My mental illness had never been that bad, right? For me to warrant being sectioned, so that was uh, kind of a blessing in disguise as well. Yeah,
0: and, and uh, what sort of experiences? I mean, I, I've been into um, psychiatric units. I had a colleague who um, discharged a CS spray in a mental health unit in Harlow, and it went through the air conditioning and. Uh, it literally everybody had to go up there and, and, and pick up the pieces. Literally, where someone had been extra violent. <laughs> did you experience any, cause it? Because there is an unpredictability around some of the people that reside there. Yeah. Did you experience some of that?
1: Um, not in that particular unit. I did in another unit, which was a um, uh, low secure hospital. So. Um, low secure for people with comorbid uh, learning disabilities or autism with mental illness as well. Right. With, normally with a, a forensic background, so um, they, they could have been uh, sex offenders, for example, on Section thirty-seven forty-one um, sections of the Mental Health Act, which is um, uh, which are uh, sections used by the uh, legal system, so impo- imposed by the courts. Oh, okay, <clears> yeah um detained at his most uh, displeasure and yeah yeah. so in they're in a low secure hospital as opposed to prison because they're deemed to be ill rather than criminally culpable right yeah so um yeah i i certainly saw more violence there but never uh aimed at me um uh, but those those uh Sort of locations and environments were quite intimidating, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, you're on a heightened state of alert all the time because yeah. you just didn't know what was going to happen next. And, um, you know, having to sit in padded rooms and so on, and, and making sure that you were sat near the exits and, and had a panic alarm with you and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, that was quite, that was quite triggering actually yeah when I, when I look back on that mm. um, but again rewarding and and fascinating to see how again how people's minds work,
0: and the staff within those units do a fantastic job and they have to part up with an awful lot mm. you know I, I I used to sit on the, the the board at um at Harlow with the the community mental health team, mm. and you know they they really had some difficult characters to deal with mm. yeah, and they they have to go through an awful lot. The only thing I found really difficult is that the staff would wear normal clothes, and the, the the people that resided there. And when I first went there, I was like, "Should you be going out? That front? Should you be going out that front door?" But anyway, we we digress. Um, how long were you doing that particular role for?
1: So I was that was on a fixed term contract. So I was doing that for a year, and then I moved on to. Um, Another advocacy position, which um, was uh, at that same low secure hospital, um, but also it was to the dual role. I used to do NHS complaints oh, okay. ab- ab- advocacy as well. Right. So both both parts of that role were, were particularly busy. Um, yeah. 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 Did you enjoy it? Not overly.
0: <laughs> no, well, look, you, you, your honesty is overwhelming. And, it, you know, as I said to you before, if you don't like something, you're clearly one of these people that will – you will make the change. You <laughs> won't wait for the change to make its mind up for you. You will make the change. Yeah. So where did you go to from there?
1: So from there I went to um, adult social care in for Suffolk County Council and I was a community care practitioner um, with the uh, specialist um, East Dementia Cluster, I think oh, it was. Wow. So, yeah, so I specialised in moderate to advanced dementia for two and a half years.
0: Well, my hat goes off to you, mate. Thank you. My mother-in-law's got dementia and she's now in a home, and I tell you, it's heartbreaking. It is the, the disease that nobody wants. I've got friends that have been diagnosed with it, and it is absolutely heartbreaking. So, well mm-hmm. done, mate.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and again, another, another eye-opening experience. Interestingly, what, what, um, what I've tended to do throughout my, uh, the sort of later part of my life is push myself into areas which have frightened me, <laughs> just, just to um, push myself out of my comfort zone and, and to continue that, that, um, that learning. So when I was a mental health advocate uh, to start with, I was a bit um, wary of the people with dementia, and and it was nothing to do. There was no sort of discrimination on my part in terms of anybody having a dementia. It was all my ignorance around lack of under, yep. lack of understanding. Yep. I didn't understand it, so I was scared of it, and saw this this behaviour and was like, "Oh, that looks scary. I don't want anything to do with that." And I I ended up thinking, well, actually, the only way I'm going to overcome that is to push myself into it, get out of your comfort zone, Rich, you know, go and do something about it. So that's why the dementia role really appealed to me in um, Suffolk County Council. And interestingly, while I was doing that, we used to work quite closely with the other teams as well. And there was another team that specialised in learning disability and autism, and they used to speak quite a lot about their experiences. And again I was like, oh no, I don't don't like don't like the sound of that. No. That sounds really challenging. And I don't and again it was like because I didn't understand it. So I pushed myself to then go and work in learning disability and autism as yeah, well. Good. So um yeah. Like I would say all these all these things have had a um a subsequent um uh, natural, organic sort of outcome really. Yeah. So yeah.
0: So we've 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 gone through that. We've we've done the 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 autism and um, special needs element as well. What, mm-hmm. what ha- happens next?
1: Oh crikey! Um, where are we up to? Um, <laughs> oh, you are like this. The total change. <laughs> Go on, then. So then I so. One of the issues with with these types of jobs in the uh, voluntary sector is that they are all dependent on funding. Of course they are. Because a lot of them are uh, run by charities. Um, And, um, yeah, so a lot of them are fixed-term contracts. So, you know, a year's fixed-term contract is great, but towards the end of that year, so eight, nine months, you've got one eye on the horizon already just in case that funding isn't there again. Yeah. So... um, in the advocacy role where I was supporting people with learning disabilities and autism, that role came to an end and I didn't have anything to go to. So I found myself out of work um, and came across, you know, came across a bit of a, a, a flat period in my mental illness again because of not having anything to go yeah. to. And um, a, a friend of mine suggested that I go and do some bits for a, for another one of his pals, so which was in building and construction. So i <laughs> I, I went and did I went and did some labouring because I thought, well, you know, I'm not proud. I, I can turn my hand to most things. Um I need the money. I've got daughter to to support. I've got bills to pay. Yeah. So um I went and did that temporarily. And um, but how was your mental health at this time? I mean, you, it's about feeling valued.
0: And yeah. When you become unemployed, you don't feel how how was your overall mental
1: health oh it was, it was pretty pretty much uh, rock bottom um yeah yeah you, you, know, you when you when you're um you know quite sedentary and you you know you can't um you can't see the point of anything and you know it's it's difficult to get out of bed let alone get out of the house and so on so you know it was a real blessing in disguise for my friend to sort of come round and mm-hmm. say look what about this rich um and actually it was a godsend because, um, doing something that was so practical took me out of my head stuff and, um, put me in a, in a small team of other, other guys where there was a bit, bit of banter and stuff as yeah. well. And um, we were away a lot, which was, you know, which was okay. And, um, I ended up sort of doing a bit of project management in, instead and, and becoming self-employed and stuff and, and doing that for a bit for, for, for my pal, um, But again, um, things got on top of me a bit with being away so much and um, I was also drinking a lot as well with the sort of nature of the work we were doing and the the after hours socialising. Excessively? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that really took off. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, that came to an end. Do you
0: you think that, You know, have you got an addictive personality when it comes to that type of thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and looking back, I always have done. And you know, for anyone who's listening, addiction isn't just about the substance or or whatever it is at the time. It it could be, it can be drink, drugs, sex, gambling, food, food, yeah, um, tech. You know, it can be looking at your phone, it can be social media addiction or, yeah. or, or box set addiction, um, where, there, where there's a, a dependency and where there's a, a, a reaching out and a craving to change however you're feeling at that time and that that feeling is so strong that you can't control it or feel you can't control it, then, um, yeah, yeah there, there are issues there. And um, so for me, the, the drink had always um, been that, that, uh, that comforter of uh, changing how I felt. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until the end of um, 2016 that I realised I had an issue with that and, um, you know, got myself some help and, um, yeah, six six years on, I'm... Bit... You
0: haven't had a drink since? No. And, and you said earlier on, you know, we're, one, we're all one step away from mental health issues, mm-hmm. but we we're all one drink away from alcoholism. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's easy to sink into a bottle of scotch. Yeah. And I remember a pathologist saying once that um, if if you've got problems and you have a drink, all you're doing is preserving that problem. Because when you look at a post mortem, for instance, the organs go into alcohol mm. and, and they're preserved forever. And that's all alcohol does; it just preserves it for another day, and it doesn't ever. The problems never get dealt with. Mm. So you you've, haven't had a drink for six years, which is fantastic. Well done, mate. Thank you. Um, so where did we get to now? Where, where are we in our life?
1: Um, so then I, again, I pushed myself. I saw a, uh, a job come up in domestic abuse. And, but it was not a conventional uh, role in domestic abuse because it was working with the perpetrators. Wow rather than the victims. So for, me, so for me, with being ex-job, that was a massive uh, challenge in terms of my thinking, having uh, been on the other side and, um, you know, been arresting yeah. the perpetrators. So I, I went for the job because I thought, well, again, I want to push myself out of my comfort zone. And I, I'd, I'd, there's always uh, two sides to the story. Or more sides to, to the story, anyway, and I thought it'd actually be really interesting to see what it's like from perpetrators' point of view, and find out what goes on in their heads. So I then worked on a pilot program for uh, a pilot project for two years um, called Drive, and I was employed by Relate, the fam- yep. family counselling people. Um, so, yes, I work with uh, high-risk perpetrators of domestic abuse. So those are the ones who are most likely to either significantly harm or kill their partners.
0: That is fascinating.
1: And that was... We focused on um, pro-social modelling, uh, motivational interviewing and uh, behavioural change. So we used basic um, cognitive behavioural therapy models to try and... Um, Yeah, get through to and change how they thought. And, um, you know what, I thought even if um, I just stopped maybe one assault against a partner, I thought that's enough for me during those two years. Yeah,
0: no, I I absolutely agree. And did you deal with um, both sexes, male and female, or was it predominantly men?
1: Um, In theory, I could have done, but all, all of mine were men. Right, yeah. and uh, that statistically, they are more likely more likely to, to be yeah. men. Yeah, um, but again, yeah, that, that was a that was a fascinating role. Yeah, I bet. Um, and a lot, a lot of these guys, you know, what they they'd they'd sometimes they'd sit down, and they'd be in tears in front of you, and and it would be because they'd never had the chance to actually tell their story, not their story from the perspective of whatever the incident or incidents had been. But nobody had ever sat down and listened to what happened to them.
0: And why they were in that situation. Because I wonder, and this is my you know my, my police head, I wonder how many of those have been the victim of violence in their own homes prior to getting involved in a serious relationship. So it could have been, you know, the slipper from the mum, slipper from the dad, you know, beaten up by a brother, whatever. And they're, they're seeking their retribution in their partners because their partners are a... Are a soft touch by comparison because they couldn't fight back to those individuals. Mm-hmm. They're now fighting somebody that they profess to love.
1: Yeah, and you know, in a, in a funny way, they they do love them, um, but it's um, it's a sentimental love. It's it's uh, it's attachment rather yeah. than love, yeah. and it's uh, yeah. it's uh, an unhealthy attachment, and it's because of primarily uh, learnt behaviour from being a child. Yeah. And that could be either, wit- like, as you say, witnessing uh, abuse or um, experiencing it themselves and, and, and looking at what they call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences and uh, trauma and so on. And some of these guys have had absolutely horrendous childhoods. So. Oh, yeah. And you think, well, you didn't have a fighting chance anyway. You were going to... You're gonna You were gonna turn out like this because that's it's when when a child grows up in an environment where somebody is knocking seven barrels out of someone else, it's normalised. Yeah, as distressing as it is, they think, "Oh, that's what you do." That that's what that's how men treat women. That's what you do. Yeah. So then, that's what they go on to do. Yeah. Not all of them. That's a bit of a sweeping statement for me to say that, but uh...
0: no, but I get it because the abusers become the the abused become the abusers, Mm -hmm. and like you say, it's learned behaviour, and it's really sad. And you just you know it's it's happening in closed doors all across the land, and it's but it's been happening forever. This isn't a modern phenomena, but the fact is that the police service have now professionalised the way in which they deal with um, domestic abuse victims and offenders. And you know, some people need help. They don't need arresting, but that's a different story. We, you know, we, we we went down in the police service of arresting every offender, and I think they still do it. But some people just need to have that that, that breathing space, just to be put in a car, taken round to a, a friend's, or you know, thirty miles away, so that they can build that fire gap. But yeah, of course, that fire gap sometimes comes via via a
1: court. But uh, and, that, and that was one of the, the positive things about um, our role. I mean, we, we didn't have to uh, have any, um, you know, there didn't have to be any court uh, orders in place for us to get involved or anything. It, right. could, it could be that they were just uh, referred to us by, uh, you know, a, refu- a refuge or independent domestic violence at, at advisor or police or, or whatever, and we, we could get involved and see what support they needed.
0: Did you go into custody suites or was it...
1: Yeah, we went into custody. We used to visit in prisons as well. Um, We used to help get restraining orders. Um, We would... um, So we'd do all that behavioural change stuff, but we'd also support or disrupt as well. So if they engaged, we would support them. If they didn't engage, we would disrupt them. Yeah, no. And that could be background information, looking on their social media and, um, yeah, just finding out if they've got any other partners and that sort of thing as well. So, uh, And yeah. as I say, I think they professionalise it. The
0: fact is that the families can go in if there's a new partner or they can go in and ask that question, can't they? Are, are they known yeah. to you yeah. as being a domestic abuse um, suspect? Yeah, yeah. They, perpetrator?
1: Um, people can apply under uh, what's called claire's Law mm. um, to find out if... um if, uh, you know, a new partner has got any uh, previous history of, of uh, that sort of offending. So, for yeah, a bit of peace of mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. The, and the police respond to that really quickly, mm. and yeah. rightfully so. How long did you do that role for?
1: That was uh, two, two and a half years, right. I think it was, yeah. And does
0: that bring us up to where we are now? Or?
1: Uh, not quite, no. Uh, no. I'm not rushing no. you. No, under- no, you're fine, you're fine. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gotten to religion yet, have we? Um, so after that, I thought, um, so again, that was a fixed term contract and that was coming to an end. And I thought, right, okay, actually, I'd like a bit of a change because that was quite an intense role, as you can imagine. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I decided I quite fancy doing something totally different again, <laughs> and um. I went and trained to become a driving instructor. <laughs> well, you, you can't get more different than that, can you? <laughs> well, you say that,
0: but you know what? It's, it's the same it's, set of skills though.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're, you're sat there, you're listening to people and you're, I mean, it's not so much instructing now, it's, it's more coaching. So instruction there's the emphasis on tell, tell, tell. Whereas with coaching, what you're doing is you're, you're questioning them to draw out from them what knowledge they already have right. and then helping them to use that knowledge to, to for, formulate their own answers. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a, a skill involved with that as well.
0: What was that like? I mean, I I couldn't be... I'm not patient enough. I, I couldn't... I try and show someone how to swing a golf club, and I struggle with that. You know, it's what was that like to to teach somebody to drive?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, the, the job in itself was fine, um, but it was um, it was a franchise, and the franchise costs were quite high, and um, also the process to become qualified is uh, is, is incredibly difficult to, to qualify. Is it really? So, yeah, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, and I suppose those hoops cost money along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, you know, um, with all your training, it costs several thousand to do it. And so I passed my part one. Well, there's three tests, so I passed my part one and my part two um, with flying colours, no problem at all. And then the third, uh, the third test, which is where you you have to go out with a pupil, with the examiner sat in the back, and he watches you right. deliver a lesson. Okay. So you've got 40 minutes to showcase what you can do, which is easier said than done. Yeah. And um, and I failed it, um, but by which time I'd already kind of thought, this isn't for me. <laughs> 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 so, um, yeah, so I, I packed that in and um, went back to health and social care, but in Essex. Right. Just for a short time. Um, but it... it it had all changed since I'd been with uh, Suffolk County Council when I found that, that very difficult transitioning back into that. And um, so I left there, and that was two days before COVID. Oh, no. So, um, yeah, so then I was out of work for a good good year or so I think it was really yeah and and I mean during that time I was looking around for work and it was it was difficult I was living with my parents at the time who we were both shielders so I couldn't really go out and do my health and social care stuff because I'd have been too close to people yeah um to pass that stuff on um and I thought well I looked at my CV and I thought what's missing a lot of the jobs I wanted to do you needed a degree which I didn't have so then I thought well, the only way to change that is to get one. So I applied to Essex Uni and uh, applied to do a, a BA in um, psychosocial and psychoanalytic studies, and um, received an unconditional offer, which um, I was elated about because I'd never thought I was good enough to go to uni. So as a as a mature in my forties, I, I was quite, yeah. quite, quite proud of that. Yeah, I bet. Um to then be so secure my place, and then to then be told that I wasn't eligible for funding because of um, my HNC I'd done in engineering oh, tw- no. twenty four years before. Oh no! So it was like back to square one again. So take you know, back one. back on the roller coaster of Richie's life. You know,
0: given with one hand, taken away with another. Yeah,
1: and. Um, so then I went and got a job with uh, a brain injury charity. Um doing uh, yeah, yeah, doing support work and secured the They're job. They're a great they are a great charity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um oh who's their um their patron? Um Tennant. Who's oh yeah, David name? Tennant. David Tennant. David he's, Tennant he's is his yeah. patron, yeah. Um so anyway I secured that job and I, and the I mean the interview I think was in the November and I was due to start in the January and um as it happened there was another massive lockdown over the Christmas there was, yeah. and all of the um support centers and rehab places across Essex were closed down by right. by the council so my I didn't even get to start that job Oh what a shame So uh, yeah um yeah and then yeah roll on again uh, another few months and um i ended up working for the nhs so right. yeah um in so in the community so i was supporting people with uh, learning dis and autism again in the community and um towards the end of that which was um so september last year um so i did it did a year with them Towards the end of that, I'd, I'd, I'd realised that um, I'd kind of had enough of being sat in front of a computer screen, because despite the hands-on type of role it was, there was also a tremendous amount of time spent typing up records and, and yeah. so on. And um,
0: It's not very glam- glamorous, is it?
1: No, and you know, it's, it's, it's tiring being sat in front of a screen, yeah. And and... I suppose I was experiencing a bit of existential angst and just thinking, what is this all about? You know, what's life about and why am I here? And um, I kind of thought, yeah, I've, I've done quite a bit of helping people and is there, is there something I can do to be a bit kinder to myself? And um, that's where the idea for my latest venture sort of came in.
0: Which is very good, I have to say. We've, we've seen your work and it's uh, really cool. So tell us all about that. And then we're going to get onto the the religion side.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, what I decided was that I, I needed uh, more autonomy and flexibility in my life and to work around, you know, some of my health issues and also um, so that I could focus more on uh, practical things rather than being in my head all the time. Because as, as much as I love helping vulnerable people, um, it's... Uh, it's incredibly draining as mm. well. And when you've got your own stuff to deal with, um, you know, it can be quite overwhelming at times. So I thought, well, I need to do something that's more practical. Um, but what can I do maybe that can combine the two? Uh, so I came up with the idea of um, doing being a, a gardener, come handyman, and uh, so self employed. And I thought, well, what i'll do is i'll retain my dbs check so people can see that um you know i'm i'm clear in terms of criminal record i can yep. be trusted and um get the public liability insurance which i've got but also market myself as dementia friendly because one of the things that i i saw when i worked in uh, dementia was that Uh, A lot of these older people were being preyed upon by rogue traders, yeah, absolutely, cowboy traders. So either people coming around and overcharging for work, or um, maybe they'd go in and um, you know distraction burglaries, yeah, or they'd go in, you know, and little old Doris would have fifty quid in their purse and they'd, they'd. counting it out in front of them to pay them 30 and they're actually taking 40 or 50, da-da-da, yeah. so on and so forth. And I and I I, I just thought, you know, there's got to be something I can do that can combine this this passion for helping people, um, provide a service, but also help people and look out for vulnerable people. So that's where the, the, the idea for um, this business came up, really. And also the fact that um, in, in terms of um, older people... Uh, social isolation is it can be an absolute killer for them. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I
1: thought, you know, yeah, well, if you've got somebody who's popping in just once a week to do their gardening or um, do a couple of jobs here and there, then um, it's an extra pair of eyes on them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, happy to liaise with family just to say, oh, you know, I'm a bit worried about this, or a bit worried about that. You know, so-and-so's acting a little bit strange. Maybe you want to go and, you know, get them tested for a UTI or something because...
0: Yeah, and that, that's interesting. That's interesting because I know that the UTI I've I've had family members who've had UTI and um unary tract infection. Yep. Yep. And they've gone absolutely I mean it's a terrible term, but they've gone do lally. Mm-hmm. They've started seeing things, they've started alleging that certain things have happened. And it's because they've had a waterworks infection. Yep. It's it's really bizarre how that how that impacts on people's lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and like like you say, with with that element of dehydration, they can have uh, hallucinations and uh, experience things that uh, you know alt, altered sort of states of consciousness almost in in terms of what what's going on for them isn't what's going on for us, and that can be really distressing for them. Mm. Um, and it could be just a case of right, okay, let's let's dip, te- dip test Doris and see 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 what what comes back, yeah. and um, you know, it might surprise them that they then need a short course of antibiotics yeah. and they're fine. Because uh, the other thing is that that gets um, mistaken for dementia yes. as well. Yes, and 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 also if they've got dementia and a UTI. It's a whole world of hell for them. Yeah. Um, with a
0: uh, which we've uh, experienced within our family.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, when they when they have that on 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 top of um, yeah, on top of dementia, it's it's and you're horrendous. qualified
0: to recognise this, aren't you? I mean, you you're you've you've worked within this sphere, so you know you've worked with dementia mm-hmm. patients, um, so you know what you're looking for. Whereas yeah. other people, and we've got some great gardeners on xjobservices.com, but they may not recognise the the symptoms of dementia. It may be the case that you're dealing with somebody on a regular basis, you think, Well, oh, there's a change there. Yeah. You can then go back to the family member mm-hmm. and say, just you know, just keep an eye, go and get a a referral sorted out and what have you
1: yeah sure, I have to be a bit careful when you say qualified, I'm, uh, I mean I've got a diploma in health and social care but I'm not degree um, no, educated I, um, I, I, and, I will um... take back that then,
0: but, <laughs> but, you, but, you, but, but your recognition of such issues is such that um, you can you can recommend
1: yes, yeah And and I mean, also, I mean, I I had a a guy was doing some gardening for during, um, yeah, during during the end of last year, and um, he told me that he was diabetic, and I saw that he was starting to look a bit wobbly while he was talking to me, and um, sort of sussed out he was starting to have a hypo. So it was like, right, okay, where's your glucose tablets? Let's go and get you sat down, and um, you know, was was able to help him like that. Um, You know, another good thing is. One of one of my customers, he said, Oh, well, I like it when you come round, Richie. He said, Because it's it's the the garden was my pride and joy. I can't get out there now because I'm you because know, of my mobility. He said, So when you come, I I like that I can trust you and I can come out whilst you're there. That if I do take a fall, I'm not expecting you to pick me up, but at least there's somebody who can you get, can get help. That. Yeah. And um that's really nice because, you know, I set up a work platform and he comes and sits out on that sometimes. Oh, and we, we have a bit of a yarn and he uh, imparts some of his knowledge about some of the, the flowers and stuff like that, which which is nice. And, um, yeah, that's good. And, and I mean, another, another sort of benefit is that um, some people – when they find out that I used to work in dementia, will ask me certain things about it. And I'm able to say, well, did you know you're entitled to this? Or did you know mm. you can have this assessment or that assessment? And I can start talking about, you know, powers of attorney and uh, best interest decision-making and all that type of stuff as well. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's a That's lot to be said about like, it.
0: When you started your journey as a police officer who would have thought you'd been doing what you're doing now i mean you've you've gone through a number of interesting roles Mm -hmm.
1: what's the name of your company what what do you so my company is called privet property and and i've come up with that name um in terms of uh, privet being like Private privet hedge and property being like the uh, housing type part of it. So, privet being the garden inside and yeah. the property being the home repair. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Private property, garden care, home repair.
0: And we'll put all your social media links and everything on here. And they, I mean, you you travel through Essex. Mm-hmm. Um, you're based in South Woodham, but you've got quite a, a wide coverage. You'll go pretty yeah. much anywhere to, to, to work. Right, so, sir... You're a practicing Buddhist, aren't you? A religion that I know absolutely nothing about. So just treat me as a
1: complete novice. Okay, so um, my first encounter with Buddhism was mm, probably actually when I was about 10. I was at a family friend's and um, with my parents for Christmas due, I think it was. And um, their eldest son, who was about eight years older than me, he... um, He'd always been uh, non-conventional. So, and I remember like seeing his room and he had like a, he had like these weird and wonderful things and he had like a clock which was powered by electrodes in potatoes or something oh, like right, that. Okay. And it was all stuff like that. I was like, quite intrigued. And uh, so I found it, you know, I found out he was into Buddhism and um, not that that really sort of inspired anything at the time but um, that's my sort of first recollection of thinking oh there's, there's something a bit different out there and then when I was 17 18 so yeah 30 years ago a friend of mine used to go to meditation classes in Colchester and all my pals used to mock him for it and I, I thought well rather than acquiescing I'm I'm going to Go and see for myself what it's all about. Yeah, and it was it was Buddhist medita- meditation, and um, I went along and learnt the two main types of meditation that they do. Yeah. And the order member there, his, his name was uh, Harsha Prabha. That's his ordained name. And
0: do you have an ordained name?
1: No, I don't, I'm not ordained. No, no. no. Okay. Um, yeah Hakuna Matata um, <laughs> there's no need to worry <laughs> if we do this again in eight years time and that's my old Dane name that'll be funny yeah we'll
0: will, we will come back and visit
1: Um and uh, I, this guy was just the most chilled out guy I'd ever seen in my life he was just like he was like he was floating right he was, he was just so relaxed and Peaceful and and just uh, you know his focus and his concentration and it was just amazing and there was just a lovely calm relaxed aura in, in the place um, and um, like I say I was seventeen eighteen at the time so um, I I went along a handful of times and thought yeah I like this um, but the 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 draw of um, sex drugs and rock and roll sort of. Uh, Paul t- took over instead, <laughs> really, and um, yeah, you know, I was off playing with drums in bands and you know, going out drinking and yeah. um, seeing girls and stuff, so yeah, that was my first proper encounter with it, really. And then, um, roll on many moons later into start 2018, um, I had a health scare at the start of the year. So I went to have a, an ultrasound on my kidneys. And um, whilst I was having the ultrasound, they said, oh, yeah, they, we've located the kidney stone. Da, da, da. Oh, and uh, the tumour's still there on your liver. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, the, the the results will be through your doctor in a amount of weeks. And I was like, tumour? What tumour? What tumour? Oh, Oh, didn't you know? Yeah, no. Oh, well, right, okay. Well, um yeah, there, there is a tumor on your liver and um so but we'll let the doctor talk to you about that. So how long did they think that the tumor had been there then? I I I don't know. They they didn't they didn't the, allude the, to the, yeah, that bit. Didn't allude to that or anything at the time. So I came out of there um in a a, a bit of a state, um thinking that's it. Uh, you local. know, and, and and thinking because of my my history with the drinking, I thought, well, there's a bit of karma for you there, Rich. You know, you've got yourself a, a tumor on your liver because of your drinking. Um, but I sort of picked myself up, dusted myself down, and thought, well, it is what it is. You know, I can't change it, so I change how I think about it. Um, so I went away and I thought, well, I can't I can't do anything until I've got the formal results from the GP or consultant. Anyway, um. But w- also what happened around that time, I'd lost a lot of weight. Uh, I'd lost like a couple of stone within a month and had major tiredness and a, a number of other mm. worrying symptoms. Um, and, um, you know, off the back of that, my my sort of mood then um, plummeted because of that as well. And also I I'd, I'd just then convinced myself I was going to die.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get it.
1: And so I then thought, right, um, bucket list. So I got my bucket list out, and one of the things on there was to go to a Buddhist retreat. Wow. And I was living in Suffolk at the time, and I found a Buddhist retreat uh, just outside of Bury St. Edmunds. It's uh, called uh, Vajrasana. And um, so I found that, and I booked up for a, a weekend, um, and, yeah, to go on my own, it was booked up through the London Buddhist Centre. So there was a coach load of 40 or 50 Buddhists from London going up there and little me pitched up on my own, not knowing anyone in a bit of a state and um, just wanting to try and get some respite from the you know day-to-day life and what was going on in my head in terms of thinking I was going to die. Um, so I went along to this retreat and... Um, you know, so that was a Friday afternoon through to a Sunday afternoon. And uh, it was, it was just, well, life-changing. It was just awesome. am- amazing just um, being around um, other people who were so calm and collected, peaceful, um, and who had seemed to have... Um, some real substance about what they were what they were talking about um no, there was no it, it, there seemed to be a real authenticity about them and um nothing that they spoke about was was superficial it wasn't any of this oh you know what's going on with the weather today and stuff yeah there's a place for that but you know it no small talk it was all in depth stuff and i thought yeah this is, this is interesting actually and um, I learned, how to, well, picked up the meditations again from what I'd done yeah. 30 odd years before or whatever. And um, they came back very quickly. And very quickly, I was able to um, uh, go sort of inwards and, and focus on myself and develop that insight. And I took part in some of the rituals in the shrine room as well. And it, it was like um, the only one can describe it is like it was like a, a coming home. Right. Uh just something very in in your heart center. You, know, you you can't even it's really difficult to to intellectualize it and um, But
0: it made you feel really comfortable.
1: Yeah, there was just something very homely about it and uh What are the values of of being a Buddhist? I mean, there's <laughs> Crikey, where do you start? I mean, for for instance, I've I've recently become a, a Buddhist Mitra, and Mitra in uh, Sanskrit means friend, so friend of the of the order, and um, what that means is that um, I consider myself to be a, a Buddhist, and um, that uh, you know I am agreeing to try and live by by the precepts, and we have. Um, uh, five sort of precepts, which are, they're not like vows or anything like that. They're not rules. They're more like sort of guidelines to okay. try and live your life by. And, you know, the, the basic sort of precepts that I live by are, um, you know, not causing harm to anyone or anything. Um, so, for instance, I, I live on a plant-based diet. Yeah, um, I, I transit well off the back of that that um retreat that one weekend retreat in 2018 uh, where it was a vegan diet for that weekend. Yeah. So as soon as I got back from that I went vegetarian. Right. So that's how powerful this stuff is. Yeah. Um and then I went to transition to uh vegan in February this year. So um yeah, I don't um you even brought your own Oatly milk today, didn't I you? I did indeed, yes, <laughs> yes. You knew, you knew that
0: we were useless and we wouldn't remember. So I did remember actually, but I didn't go and get any, I apologise. So so you, you, you're you a vegan plant, plant, and we'll come back to that. Yeah. What are the other rules that you...
1: Um, so not taking the not given, which isn't just like, um, you yeah, um, know, like, that could be theft in in its mm-hmm. harshest term, um, but it, it can also be um, like not taking attention and things like that from yeah. from where it's not given. It can be applied quite broadly, right. and all these things are on a sort of uh, on on a scale um, of uh, of and and in Buddhist in Buddhism, we don't really think of um, the duality of good and bad, and that's one of the ways that it's uh, different to other. Schools of thought and, and other religions because actually um just pick it up on something you said uh, you said you described it as a religion, but you know if if you're completing um equalities monitoring forms and stuff like that, it will be listed as a as a bona fide religion yeah. which I always tick yeah however um you speak to any Buddhist, then they will actually say, well, it's not technically a religion. Because most religions are based upon um, some form of supernatural deity. So, yep. gods and yep. um, so on. Um, so, yeah, so Buddhism, for example, isn't. It's based upon uh, this one human being who, who was a prince. It's Prince Siddhartha Gautama. Who was born around two and a half thousand years ago, and all the the, the notions and concepts um, around it are all from him. So this was a living, breathing human who had some very, very forward-thinking uh, ideas on on how to um, live a, a sort of honest, genuine, peaceful, genuine, life. ethical life. Um, and that's one of the things that appealed to me about it. There, you know, there's none of this. Oh, you're going to be cast down into Hades and da da da. This that, the other. There's none of that. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I digress. So on, and, and on the not causing harm. Yeah, you've got the spectrum of um, on the worst end. You've got killing, um, and then on the, the the higher end, you've got um, you know being being, being act positively, proactively kind. To others, so yeah. you know, one of the things is about being generous, okay. um, and generosity doesn't have to be in the form of uh, finances and monetary yeah. gain and stuff. For me, um, I don't know if that to give anyway. So, <laughs> 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 but what you will get from me um, as either uh, a friend, family member, acquaintance, customer, whatever, or if you know me, um, I will give you my time. Yeah and that to me is the most precious thing because you can't get time back.
0: No you can't. You're absolutely right. Um
1: so what you yeah I I, I like to invest in people because I am uh, genuinely interested in in people. Yeah. Um and and see their value and um like to harness um their good qualities really. So um yeah there's there's a couple of the precepts. Another one is uh what they call um right speech so it's about um, you know not lying not being dishonest yeah. and so on and um, and that can be even down to like uh, white lies and stuff as well really? so so it's about Are you having
0: a nice time today
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am indeed and, and that yeah that is yeah that is the truth <laughs> um, but and, and I mean a lot of that can be well, a lot of Buddhism is about self-development. Um, so that can be about building your self-esteem and your assertiveness so you actually feel confident enough to be able to speak the truth. Right. Um, that even, makes sense. Even though it might not be what someone else wants to hear. So then that's about, well, actually, that's, that's as long as that isn't causing harm... So yeah. you you, know, you got to yeah, be a bit careful there. It, yeah. you, there's got to be a balance. Um but also there's the you know there's something about um yeah, not not causing harm to yourself as well. And not just acquiescing yeah. with certain things and doing certain things just for just for the sake of it when actually in your heart of hearts you may um may not believe in it or yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. So you know, um it's quite empowering. Um there's another preset which is about um, abstaining from or, or reducing the amount of intoxicants you have in your life. So drink, drugs, um, caffeine. I'll occasionally have caffeine. I think I've got caffeine today, have and I, I'll call. I think you probably to be to be fair. My,
0: my life is built around caffeine. I'm afraid cups of tea, but
1: I apologise. That's okay. That's no, fine. That's fine. And um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of already halfway there with some of the stuff, the self development of stuff in, right. in terms of my recovery and my sobriety. So obviously, I don't I don't touch drink at all, and it's not saying don't ever don't ever have a drink, but it's like well, just be careful because any of this stuff that you do and if you bre kind of breach any of these precepts, then what they do is what what what's going to happen is it's going to affect your um whole being and, yeah. and how you are how you present yourself and how you interact with the world and the sort of loving kindness that you can give out as well so um yeah I I'm, I'm very fortunate with my sobriety that I've uh, I I've, I've been able to uh, keep that going for 6 years and um but you you went sober before you became I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I did that through a, a very well-known national organisation, which I mem- mentioned. Well, you can, you can mention what um, you like, mate. But... Well, it, it's part of it that you don't uh, endorse right, okay. it or no, whatever, but people, people will know what it's yeah, like because yeah, yeah, it, 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 it sounds like a very well-known um, road recovery group. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, And interestingly, you know, part of that... Um, Going along to those meetings, he introduced me to this notion of service. So service for for the benefit of others, and you know, service in the benefit of others is about reducing that ego and stepping away from self.
0: But you already had that. You had the service element in you anyway. The fact that you've you've done the police route, you've done your stuff around the healthcare side, voluntary, paid, whatever it may be. You've mm-hmm. you've got that service. String in your in your in your bow, if
1: you like, to a certain extent. But for for example, um, when I first went along to those meetings, I was sort of in at the start time and then out at the end. Right. And then the more I got into it, it was like, well, actually, I'm going to turn up 20 minutes early and I'm going to help set up. I'm going to set I up. See. I'm going to set up yeah. the room. I'm going to get the posters out, the promotional literature and stuff. I'm going to be available to welcome anyone new who walks in who may be feeling a little bit anxious. Um, If, um, you know, we need milk for the tea or whatever or need a hand for the tea or doing whatever or taking part in um, reading out our our group principles or... um, Doing a reading or something like that. I'm going to do it.
0: Right. Okay. I'll because
1: th- this isn't just for me. This is about a bigger picture. Yeah. So that notion of service um, has really stood me in good stead for, in terms of coming into like the Buddhist world because um, I won't go on about. It. There's the, the the notion of what's called the bodhisattva ideal. And a, a bodhisattva is somebody who um, do, hasn't who has the opportunity to reach enlightenment. Which is like the ultimate awakening that the Buddha achieved. But they choose not to so that they can um, serve um, everyone else. Right, I got you. So it's quite, you know, it's a very sort of unselfish thing to do. So service is important within Buddhism, as is uh, spiritual friendship. And um, yeah, so for me, I'm proactively involved with my local sangha, as we call it, which is our local community. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go on about what I do and don't do, no, because, no, no, because that would um, that would fly in the face of um, what you actually do, what I, yeah, of, of stepping away from the ego. And um, there's a fine balance between um, rejoicing in our merits in, in what we do and being. Being sort of proud of the the, the things that yeah. we do for people, and also, um, you know, you, you don't want to be. I don't, I don't want to come across as braggy, by the, but by you're maintain, you're but you maintain
0: you are maintaining the modesty around the lifestyle. It's it's a lifestyle as opposed to religion, isn't it? It's and Absolutely. who's the operational head, if you want for one of a better? Is there an iconic person that you look up to now, or is it
1: uh, the Buddha? Mainly the Buddha. I mean the um, Say, when you sort of deepen your practice, um, you, you say you're, you're, you're going for refuge and you go for refuge to the three jewels and the three jewels are the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So the Buddha is the, the idea of the uh, awakened mind. Uh, the Dharma is the, the Buddha's teachings, which is the, the, the truth and how, the way, um, how things really are as opposed to how we, we perceive them. And the Sangha is like the uh, spiritual community, so the the people that are within it. And it, there is a or almost a, a supernatural uh, Sangha as well. Um, I said there wasn't a supernatural, but there the, the, the kind of is. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, the Buddha essentially was human, so, yeah. Um, how do you feel, because yeah. uh, we were watching
0: um, I'm a Celebrity, and, of course, I, th- I think, is Boy George a, a Buddhist? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he, he, dare I say it, he didn't cover himself in a lot of glory in some of the stuff <laughs> that he, he did there, but I wouldn't expect you to. But, but how there, there must be a number of famous people that have gone into Buddhism. Um, how does that sit with, you know, the ego side? Because, obviously, they're getting up and performing, and when you get up and perform, there is an element of ego that gets involved with a performance.
1: Yeah, an in interesting point because one of the um, well, well, okay, so there's a thing called the four noble truths within Buddhism, and uh, one of the that the, they are that um, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, um, there's an end of suffering, and there's a way to the end of that suffering, and the way to the end of that suffering is the eightfold noble path, and within that eightfold noble path are Eight things, fairly enough, and what like such as like you know, right speech and and so on. And um, one of those things is right livelihood. So one of the things that can never be considered as right livelihood within Buddhism is acting. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you raise that about Boy George, for example, yeah. um, because they you know w- what is acting about? There they can be a, a lot of uh,
0: well, yeah, it's a, it's a performance, isn't it? I mean, yes. to be a, to be an actor, it's around performance. So is Richard Gere a Buddhist as well? I'm not. I'm not sure. I might be quoting wrong names here, but there are a number of people in the um, entertainment world that have become Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is a bit of a paradox there. How do you find the acceptance around the vegan? Because the 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 um, the vegan world has escalated considerably over the past five years. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you find that now? Do you think there's more accessibility to to food, plant based foods, etc. We we see it at Tesco's and Sainsbury's and what have you, and there's the independent cafes, but they're still at a premium. You're still paying a lot of money for plant-based foods. Sure, yeah. Uh, how do you how do you feel as a vegan? I, I mean, I, I do eat meat, and every every meat lover says, "Oh, I love animals." Well, I do love animals, but I eat meat as well, you know. And I, um, how would you convince me not to eat meat?
1: Oh, I I wouldn't even attempt to. Or you're I, a, I, you're I a would, kind man. It's it's not for me to impart my views on you. No. Um Okay, that,
0: well that's kind.
1: Uh, I could I could read you a poem that I wrote about veganism and that might make you think twice about certain yeah, things. No, I, I <laughs> <laughs> um but you know, maybe food, food for thought, pardon the pun, but yeah. um you know, if you like animals that much, would you would you eat your own dog?
0: Well no, exactly. And I and I do get that element of it as well. You know, it's a it's a healthy debate. Um But how do you find it? You know, as acceptance as being as being a vegan in twenty
1: twenty two. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, acceptance wise, um, in terms of other people's views on that, uh, I I I have no view on it. Um, Everyone's entitled to their views, and I don't proactively force it down anyone's neck that they should be vegan and should live plant-based. Um, and that's kind of where my advocacy past kicks in yeah. quite nicely because I'm able to say these are the facts, these are the pros, these are the cons, you make your own mind up. Yeah. No, that's um, because I'm not, I'm not in control of anyone. Very diplomatically dealt with, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in terms of range of products out there, it is increasing. Um, but you do pay a premium for it, and that that is disappointing, um, because it, it is a healthier alternative, and yet um, uh, people are priced out of making that healthier choice. And it's ridiculous. I mean, we are, whilst we eat
0: meat, we are big vegetable eaters as well, mm-hmm. and... Vegetables are cheap. Then you don't have to spend a lot of money on a bag of carrots or broccoli or what. So for them to develop it in, this is a question I've got for you, right? So if and and this is a bit controversial, and I <laughs> apologise, but why do they make vegan burgers and vegan sausages? Why do they make them? You know, to to look like chicken pieces. What is the? Why does that happen? Why do you think that happens? Well, it's marketing. I I get that, but but it's you I'm asking the bloody questions here. (laughs) But but you can you can see the point I'm making. If if it's that Mm -hmm. abhorrent, then why are they marketed and sold as being almost almost meat like?
1: Yeah, like for example, like the Greg sausage rolls. Yeah, absolutely. Which, if you've ever tried a vegan Greg sausage rolls, they're delightful. Are they? Yeah, even yeah, (laughs) other brands are right. But you recommend them? Yeah, absolutely. Even meat eaters would say the same. Yeah, and would struggle to tell the difference. We do eat.
0: We do eat plant based stuff as well. You know, so it's not. We're not. um, We're not one dimensional. But but it is interesting that that it's marketed in that particular way. When I suppose it's to draw more people into that way of life.
1: Yeah, I I think so. And um you know food manufacturers are cottoning on to the fact that plant-based is a growth industry. And the way to attract more meat eaters into that is to make plant-based foods look like meat. Right. So that the mind is still seeing meat, but the taste buds are and well to a certain extent the taste buds are tasting meat. Yeah, yeah, they are. But they, it hasn't got all the nasties in it and isn't, isn't um, you know, ruining the planet and so on. Um.
0: So here's the debate. If we had, um, if we all ate vegetables, we wouldn't need, we wouldn't see cows because we wouldn't, we wouldn't have them, would we? You know, what, what, what would we, or we'd have a surplus of cows. Um, how does that work? I don't. I don't. You know, it's a it's a question. I haven't got an answer to.
1: Well, would we have a surplus of cows, or would we have? There's only a surplus of cows because we've bred them.
0: Yes, but if we didn't have them,
1: what happens? What happens next? There would be um, natural selection in terms of how that, how they live.
0: Them? Would we let them wander through the through the? open lands. Well, why not? We,
1: we, It was humans who domesticated them in the first well, place. Well, yeah,
0: I, I accept that, but, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, but it's an interesting debate, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's like the guy that I interviewed who, who does the shooting. If, um, it was explained to me once that if we didn't have um paid for shoots, then we wouldn't have the amount of pheasants flying around because they introduce pheasants and partridges and, and so on and so forth. So, But it is an interesting debate. Um, Richie, before we go any further, I'd like to say it's been brilliant. Oh, no, I've got one more question. What are you doing on Christmas Day? This is, we're we're four days before Christmas. What are you doing
1: Ah. on Christmas Day? Well, quite quite unconventionally, and compared to everyone else's Christmases, I'm choosing to go to the London Buddhist Centre in Hackney for the day. There's a day retreat, ten till four, and uh, we'll bring a shared vegan lunch. So we'll, we'll bring something along, and it'll be a day of um, you know, meditation, ritual readings, and just uh, nice tranquil atmosphere. No, no festivities, trees, or Decorations, no. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, that's all right. <laughs> no king's speech. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've got no pressing family matters this year, and respectful of that, uh, you know, some other members of my family want to do their own thing, and um, yeah, like I say, I've recently become a mitra, so my commitment to the the Buddhist way is is um, deepened. And, um, yeah, so I'm quite happy to go and do that um, because largely a lot, a lot of people that celebrate Christmas, it's, it's through conditioning. Um, you know, we, we're conditioned to think a certain way from a very young age that this is, this is what you've got to do, this is the norm. Yeah. And um, there is another way.
0: Before we go any further, is there anything you'd like to add, alter or change? about today's interview?
1: No, I don't think so. No, I've
0: absolutely, I've really enjoyed today and I know that the listeners will as well. For somebody who said, I don't know what I've got to talk about, (laughs) you've done bloody well, mate. So thank you very much. Um, I don't know how to say it. I I wish you all the peace in the world and um, I hope you get everything that you need.
1: Thanks ever so much, Paul. Hi, mate. Thank you. Take care. Cheers.